Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. So we only have one choice, and that is how we relate to this moment. The past has come and gone. The future is not here yet. This moment is the result of how you relate to all, related to all those past moments. And how you relate to this moment will go a long way in determining what happens in the future. One way of looking at things, which I think is a very true and useful way, is that this moment is perfect. This is the only and perfect possible outcome of your life. It may be difficult. It may be not difficult. But here it is. Can we open to it? And to the extent we're resisting it, to the extent that something about this moment is really unlikable, that also is perfect because it is showing us a place where our heart isn't fully open, where there isn't enough forgiveness, compassion, love, gratitude, devotion, whatever flavor that is in that particular moment. So that if you really want to be free, then this moment is either a moment of freedom or a moment of showing you how you can be free by opening to this moment. It's good to start thinking that way before you're almost dead. 
Seriously. Most people misunderstand the notion of forgiveness. And they think it has something to do with the other person. And the rightness or wrongness, and am I right, are they wrong, or all that kind of stuff. Forgiveness has nothing to do with changing the past or affecting this other human being. I mean, it can. The person is still alive and you want to recreate a relationship or something. But forgiveness has to do primarily with healing your own heart. So for this client of yours to begin to feel like, in a very direct, naked way, what it feels like when she says, I can't, I don't want to, I haven't forgiven. What does that feel like? It doesn't feel good. It hurts. There is suffering. There is a closeness in the heart. And when you close your heart to one person, you are closing your heart to all of humanity. You cannot love the person you love the most in the world and, and truly and hate Donald Trump. You can't. Ramdas, for instance, he would do this thing where he would have on his altar, there's a picture of Maharaji and there's a picture of Jesus and there's a picture of Buddha and there's a picture of George Bush. <coughs> right? And he would look at those beings and if the George Bush picture would <laughs> cause his heart to clench up, he would have to work with his heart. This initial stage, which I call invocation or trust, really has to do with being present with experience. One component of that is awareness being with the arising of suffering. So if this woman can be aware of what it feels like to not forgive, you could have her think about somebody she really loves a lot and then think about the person she doesn't forgive, and then back and forth. And what's the different somatic experience? And the feeling of thinking about somebody you don't forgive is a painful feeling. It's a contracted feeling. It's a defended feeling, probably. You're not asking her. All you're asking her to do is, can you heal this place in your heart? Can you find gentleness and softness in this place in your heart? that the remembrance or the concept of this other person is closing. Now, let me read this quote of Payment Children again that I read yesterday. Maybe what we've been talking about in the meantime. This is the third time we've read it. Just as nurturing our ability to love is a way of awakening bodhicitta, or the warm heart, so also is nurturing our ability to feel compassion. So why don't we change it and say, just as nurturing our ability to love is a way of awakening bodhicitta, so also is nurturing our ability to feel forgiveness. Forgiveness, however, is more emotionally challenging than loving-kindness because it involves the willingness to feel pain. It definitely requires the training of a warrior. When we practice generating forgiveness, we can expect to experience our fear of pain. Forgiveness practices daring. It involves learning to relax and allow ourselves to move gently toward what scares us. The trick to doing this is to stay with emotional distress without tightening into aversion. To let fear soften us rather than harden into resistance. So that forgiveness and compassion 
are really two words for the same thing. <laughs> that the place where you have not forgiven is a place where you don't have compassion for yourself. So Gandhi, everybody knows Gandhi, when he was a young man, he was married and he was a very lustful young man. And he was helping his father die and his father was dying very, very slowly. So one night he got tired of sitting at his father's bedside and he went to his bedroom and he made love with his wife. And when he came back to his father's bedroom, his father was dead. And Gandhi became a celibate because he was so ashamed. I mean, it, it, it changed the course of history, right? <laughs> that if, if, he wouldn't have, if he wouldn't have gone back to make love with his wife, India might still be under the British rule, for all we know. <laughs> it's kind of a funny thing when you think about it, really. But that, that he was so ashamed that he chose lust over filial piety that he chose to become celibate for the rest of his life. So the shame, of course, is a very, very powerful emotion. And just doing a practice, and we talked before about a heart practice. So if you're going through your day and you're remembering the three qualities of the heart, which we all remember are connectedness, warmth, and spaciousness. And you're just noticing, as I'm walking down the street here, is my heart spacious or is my heart open or whatever? And you just keep working with one of those qualities. You can also do, maybe you do this even before you got to the heart practice, do the belly practice, do the centering practice. Can I go from this room into the mission district by lunch, see all the what's going on, the homeless people, the yuppies, the rich people, the poor people, all what's going on here, and come back here and be centered the whole time? Probably nobody did that. People, you, there's so many interesting sights and sounds and images out there that we get lost in out there in the world. Okay, so that's why we meditate, because our eyes are shut, we're not moving around, and we can see with more clarity what's going on in the mind. But it's exactly the same process. And we need, just as before you were saying how in the diet exercise that you had a hard time doing it uh, because you wanted to have your eyes closed to feel what was going on inside, that we train ourselves to be centered, not just when we're sitting quietly. I mean, that's nice, but what really, how much of your life are you sitting quietly with your eyes shut, right? I mean, what good is centeredness if it doesn't come into relationship, if it doesn't come into work, if it doesn't come into driving, if it doesn't come into dying? So... <laughs> What was I going to say? I don't remember. Yes, ma'am. Can you ever choose not to be centered? Can you choose not to be centered? Yeah. Sure. Why? I don't understand. Give me an example of why you would choose to be not centered so you could protect yourself. Because protecting to me has to do with boundaries and alertness and being present. The energy that we create boundaries with is the energy in our belly that comes from being centered. So that, that being centered doesn't at all imply that we're not having boundaries, that we're not very alert to what's happening in our environment. So that I will admit that this, these practices I'm talking about initially do create some sense of self-consciousness. And if you're 
not learning, if you're, if you're just learning to be centered and you go into a really dangerous environment and you're trying to put all this attention inside, you might, it might be dangerous, I admit that. But what we're saying is that eventually being centered is the best way to be protected. It's the best way to be present and be responsive rather than reactive. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, well, the answer that I really want to give you is that something for you to find out. What does it feel like when you are out on the sidewalk and you are centered? What does that feel like? And what does it feel like when you are lost in conceptualizing or being out there completely in your surroundings? To me, being centered is defined by the word. There is a sense of I'm centered, that there's activity, people are going up and down the sidewalk, there's noise, there's traffic, there's things, and windows say, buy me, buy me, and women are dressed up saying, come be with me, come be with me, and people are looking tough and saying, beware of me because I'm tough and strong and I might hurt you if you look at me wrong, and it's all these, all these things out there that are very easy to get lost in. People are homeless and saying, oh my God, I'm a victim, and look at you, you're not a victim, you have to help me. If I can be centered, then I can be with all of these different inputs and be responding in a centered way, from a gut instinct rather than from guilt or shame or what society is telling me I should do. I'm there, I'm really present. And it's even harder to do what we're talking about, harder than being on the sidewalk on a Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon in the Mission District, being at the bedside of somebody who might be dying soon. Because that is going to be resonating your fear of death. No matter how much you think you're not afraid of death anymore, as long as you're not enlightened, there's going to be some fear there. There's going to be some attachment to separateness. And when you're with somebody who might not be breathing much longer, somewhere in there, that's going to be resonated. So that really what we're talking about here is walking on the sidewalk, but particularly caregiving, as work on yourself. And yes, you're right in the sense that we will be going back and forth. We will be centered and heartfelt some of the time, and other parts of the time we're going to be lost in what's going on out there. Oh my God, look at those people on the sidewalk, or here's somebody dying, I've got to do the best thing. I, last time I did that and it didn't quite work, and you're, you're caught up in, in concept about the whole thing. We've been talking about learning to trust this process of surrender into our energetic being. We will take a few more steps before the end of the day that not only are we grounded and centered, but can we then go into the heart? And as we're resting in the heart, the heart is spacious. There's not a lot of I who's there. We're, we're open. We're just being love. We're being compassion rather than doing it. And as the heart opens to that extent, this next stage of empowerment, of going beyond pure and impure, of right and wrong, that we begin to realize that we, in fact, are that which we invoked in the beginning. We are the deity. We are the incarnation. We are the manifestation of compassion, of love, of wisdom. Even when we're not 
acting in the way that we thought we should. That, that, that is fundamentally who we are. That the beloved, the deity, is not a separate thing out there. But once again, this is kind of an open secret. Until we've gone through these initiations of being aware of how we get caught up all the time, getting ungrounded and uncentered by activity, having our hearts closed because we can't forgive somebody, we can't forgive ourselves, until we have gone through these initiations and have a stable mind and an open heart, then, then, after we've done that, then we are ejected into this place of empowerment where we are beyond pure and impure. There is a wonderful story where we were with Maharaji and Ramdas was having a particularly difficult day. And he came to Maharaji and said, Maharaji, I feel so impure. Ramdas had on a long sleeve shirt and Maharaji looked up the sleeve and said, I don't see any impurity. Now, can you look up your sleeve and not see any impurity? Is it, in fact, the things we did in the past? Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody's doing the best. Everybody's fighting this battle. This kid just killed 17 people. On the Drudge Report, there is his picture, and underneath it, it said, evil. And yet, his mother had died. He has mental disability. There was nobody taking care of him, essentially. We could have a philosophical discussion, does evil exist or not? But the point is, when we think about him, does, do our hearts close, evil, bad, or is there some ability to keep expanding and realize that even that, it's a tragedy for the parents of those children. It's the tragedy for the families of those teachers or adults who got killed. There's no doubt about it. And we talked in the very beginning in this workshop that we are twofold human beings. There is this human dimension where people die and where people suffer and people are unforgiven and unforgiving. And there is this other dimension of consciousness, of pure living spirit, which all of this human relative level is contextualized within or is part of or however you want to say that. So that suffering is only suffering. Suffering is arising because there is resisting, and we are on this journey of consciousness to go beyond resistance. It's a difficult world not to resist, for sure. There is death. There is political divisiveness. There is hunger and homelessness, and the planet is being raped itself. All these things are happening. There was a woman who came to one of my groups. She only lasted a few weeks. And when she would check in, she would say that she was so disturbed by what was happening to the water and the earth through environmental degradation that as, as she started talking about it, she would break down into sobs. And the next week, I would say, okay, you want to check in what happened in the last week? And she would start sobbing about what happened to the planet. Now, I think it's wonderful that she was tuned into what was happening to the planet, but she was being rendered powerless by her being caught in her emotionality. So that we talked before about suffering arises, do we push it away or do we get lost in it or we have compassion? She didn't have compassion for herself or the planet. She was lost in emotion. 
when we can't forgive somebody, we're probably lost in emotion. It's fine for your client or you or me to do that until we're tired of doing that. And hopefully you're a skillful enough therapist or a psychologist to help her get to that point where she's saying, it hurts to be acting this way. It hurts to be lost in this emotion. And I want to move forward, as you said you wanted to move forward. Can we not judge her lack of self-forgiveness? Can we have compassion for her? Can we be a living example, a living invitation, so that, yeah, there is this pain here, and I'm open, and you can be open to her, you can be with this for as long as you need to be there. I will not withdraw any love from you. So the very first stage of groundedness, the first couple years, you're learning that there is support and nourishment in life and that when you reach out for it, that it's there. And for most of us, as I've suggested, that happens only imperfectly, that sometimes the mother figure isn't there. But that happens from day one. It ha when I was born, I was yanked out of my mother's body with forceps. They took a big set of pliers, put them on my head, and yanked me out of her body. And then it was the war, and the doctor didn't have a lot of money. And he said, if you pay me in cash, I will circumcise your son. And my parents thought, what a great deal. <laughs> so some of the first few things that happened to me in the first day of my life were not entirely pleasant. So that, that babies have this very natural response to, to pain and suffering. And it is certainly possible to have healthy enough parenting that you're not growing up protecting yourself in a certain way that your questions seem to imply, but that you're present and trusting and loving enough that you are able to respond wisely and compassionately to what it is that's arising. It's never too late to have a happy childhood, right? That what we're talking about here really, I was called once to the bedside of a, a baby who was dying. The baby had had a birth that had gone horribly wrong, and the baby had been severely oxygen deprived during the birthing process so that he had only base brain activity. He couldn't see, he couldn't think, he couldn't swallow. There was some slight response to touch. The notion was that I was there to help the baby die, which was, co it was completely ridiculous. But really what I was there to do was help the parents see if they could salvage their marriage. They were an older couple. This was their first child. Everybody said, don't take the child home. Let it be in an institution. This is going to be too difficult for you guys to deal with. But they decided to bring the baby home. He lived for less than a month. Every day of his life, except one day in which he retained some fluids, he lost weight. He couldn't, as I say, he couldn't swallow, and they had to suction out his airway so that he didn't suffocate. The father would come home. He'd see the baby was uh, smaller. He would change the setting on the feeding mechanism. The baby would throw up. The mother would get mad. But when I would come to that house, before I would talk to the parents, the first thing I would do is I would pick up the baby. And I'd hold the baby and I would go into bliss. Because he was completely awake. He was not being conditioned into the world at all. He was in that completely pure, unborn state, if you will. 
There was nothing about him in the world. It was just holding pure consciousness. Let me backtrack a little bit. And what we're talking about here now is caregiving is work on yourself. Is it possible to be grounded, be centered, to be open-hearted, and even beyond that, to begin to go beyond pure and impure, to understand that these things that are arising are perfect. Even though there is suffering, that the arising of suffering is an integral, necessary step in the alleviating of suffering. Until we become aware of it, we're not going to work with it. And it's going to keep coming up until we say, okay, I don't want to keep suffering in this way. Almost everybody I know who has come to a deep involvement in spiritual awakening is somebody that's had a very difficult earlier part of their life. I told my story right before lunch, and I some of the more well-known teachers now, like uh, Byron Katie, Eckhart Tolle, had complete nervous breakdowns before their awakening. Uh, there are a few people, Joseph Goldstein, who is a, a Vipassana teacher. He's a really healthy guy. He read some books about the Dharma. And he said, yeah, that's the way it is. And he started meditating, and he never had to go to pieces to appreciate the wisdom that was there. But that's an unusual motivation for doing this practice. Most people are doing this because life is so hard. And the harder it is, the more likely somebody is to throw themselves completely into it. Do we need to wait for the planet to blow up or your body to have cancer or your relationship to end or your grandchildren to die? Or can we begin to feel suffering in its less intense moment-to-moment -moment arising and take that as the inspiration? In a way, the whole workshop is contained in the first lesson about motivation. If you're really motivated, if you really, really, really want to be free, then everything that's arising is going to be grist for the mill. Everything that's arising, you're going to say, hey, how can I use this to move into a more open-hearted, present way of being in my life? It's hard to do this but it's a lot harder not to do it. Let me say it as clearly as I can that what we're talking about is not about repressing or about judging. Compassion and being present and meditating. Yes, it is very much the case that many people, maybe almost all of us, will be dragging along our tendencies to judge, to repress, to bring our baggage into our practice and have it dominate our practice and to judge our practice. That's why it's really useful to have a group to come to. What we're talking about is so hard to do alone so that we come to a group this weekend or you have a meditation group. You will probably find that if you're in a relationship with a significant other, that that in itself is an awakening process, that it's very hard to hide the things that you're bringing up if there's somebody sitting across the breakfast table or on the other side of the bed from you. Yeah, it's, it's very tricky stuff so that we have been talking about the hypothetical, theoretical ways of getting free. There can be admittedly a tendency to compare yourself 
to how you're doing it in this moment with what the ideal is. The crucial point of this whole project is self-compassion. That as soon as you begin to notice that you are judging yourself or judging somebody else or repressing something, more compassion is needed. More compassion is needed. With passion, how much passion can you bring to that as the Payment Children quote that I read before says so, so beautifully that it really means being willing to gently move toward what frightens us, which takes the training of a warrior. It takes a lot of daring. It's not an easy thing. If it were an easy thing, all of San Francisco would be here because everybody wants to be happy. But it involves looking at the difficult stuff. Caregiving for an other as work on yourself. And that exercise we did before where you were talking to somebody who was having, was expressing something difficult about themselves and being, paying attention to your own energetic embodiment, are you grounded, are you centered, can you be in your heart, is at least the beginning of how can we do conscious caregiving. Caregiving is really your opportunity to awaken, and the more you do that, the more you'll be available for the person that you are being with. In the Living Dying Project, we have trained volunteers who offer free of charge emotional slash spiritual support to people who come to us. And I really see our organization as a volunteer-centric organization, not a client-centric organization. That if I can support the volunteers and keep bringing them back to being present, then they will give the best support to the person who's a client. There are a couple of exercises that I'd like to show you for being with somebody who is approaching death or even somebody who's just suffering. But before I do that, I'd like to ask, are there any responses or additions to what we've just been talking about for the last uh, half hour or so? Theoretically, as chakras are awakening, the demon of the first chakra, the root of being grounded, is fear. And fear can arise as anger. Uh, it can arise as various things. It's not always just, I'm scared. And the second chakra is guilt, and the third chakra is shame. Fourth chakra is grief. And I think this is a kind of a useful paradigm because very often you notice that you or a client is caught in one of those four things, and probably they are not inhabiting a certain part of their energetic being. So that there are certainly, there's something called emotional granularity. And in 12-step in programs, they sometimes give addicts a bunch of pieces of paper that have hundreds of different emotions on them. Because often when somebody's addicted, they think there are about four or five emotions. I could be happy, sad, angry, or scared. Yet, there is such a vast nuancing of emotional responses that if we think there's only three or four or five emotions, that it's much harder to be aware of what it is that we're experiencing. So if you've got this whole big list and you start looking at the difference between slight irritation and frustration 
and anger and homicidal rage, they're, they're all going in the same direction. We begin to distinguish. And for many difficult emotions, it's much easier to learn to be with them in their seed stage. It's very hard to be with terror or rage. It's much easier to be with the beginning of anxiety or slight frustration rather than waiting till an emotion is so out of control that uh, we've really become the emotion in the way that we've been talking about. I find in my own life that I'm very good at being present during sadness. I, I'm getting a little better at being present during anger, and fear is by far the most difficult. And I remember with great vividness the first time in my life that I was really afraid and really present at the same time. I was uh, a college student. I was, I was home for the su summer break where my parents lived. The mail was not delivered to the house. There was a mailbox out on the street. And I was walking across the street to our mailbox, and I thought my grades from Cal were going to be in the mailbox. It was a beautiful summer day, sunny, warm. I was really afraid, and all of a sudden, I was just so awake in that moment. And it was shocking, because I realized that never before had there been fear, and I was present for it, that fear would arise, I would become the fear. The window of awareness would close, and all there was was fear. There was not an awareness of the fear. There's not a context to which the fear was appearing in. You might have an easier time with fear. For most people, fear is the most difficult. It was the earliest learned. So here's one other notion that I found kind of useful that I'm, I'm taking from Hamid Ali, A.H. Almas, Ridwan School, Diamond Heart. Oh, it's all the same person there. Uh, and he talks about the fact that experience can be broken up into two kinds of experience. There's the primary process and the secondary process. The primary process is our initial experience. And the secondary process is reactivity. And that a lot of people, a lot of the time, are lost in secondary process. So suppose, for instance, that when you were in high school, you were dumped by somebody that drove a green Volkswagen. Is that, I, I said this last week, and somebody said, that happened to me. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, okay. So that you're walking down the street, and you see a green Volkswagen. And the initial thing is you're seeing, and then an emotion arises. But then all of a sudden, you're into the whole reactive narrative. You're thinking about what happened, and why did that happen, and on and on and on it goes. But the reason this is so interesting is the following, that if you can begin to pay attention to the, the, the primary process, it will eventually become secondary to a deeper process. You pay attention to that, and that becomes secondary to something even deeper. So you might start out with you're feeling angry, and you, you pay attention to that. You start feeling some sadness. And you pay attention to that, and you feel some sense of abandonment. And you pay attention to that, and there's a feeling of fear. You pay attention to that, and there's fear of death. And you pay attention to that, and there's enlightenment. So that it, it takes you, fear of death is the next to last one. But you can start at any place where you're caught and be with that, and be with that fully enough, and it will begin to reveal these layers of 
protection, of defense of whatever it might happen to be. So why don't we, why don't we talk right now about what happens when you die? And fear of death will be tied up in that, and then we can talk about that a little bit afterward. So I'm going to tell you what happens when you die. <laughs> and you might very well say, well, how does Dale know? He's no more a product of the atherdest state than anybody else in the room here. Let me just say that I've been around a lot of dying people. I've gone really very deeply into meditation. But mostly I've been around some very, very wise, enlightened beings. And all the things they said about life seem to be true, have been, have been validated by my experience. And they all said pretty much the same thing about the dying experience when you cut away the cultural, religious overtones to the whole thing. The near-death experience is the first part of the dying experience. And there is a great deal of literature, stories of near-death experiences that are recounted with an incredible degree of consistency. How many people in the room have had a near-death experience? Okay, so that's maybe a quarter of the people in the room, which is about the usual average. We're using the word dying in two contexts here. There's physical dying, the brain and the heart stop, and there's the spiritual dying process, which takes place often, particularly with a degenerative disease over a much longer period of time, and continues after the person actually physically dies. So there's the spiritual dying process. It will be clear from the context which of the two ways I'm using that word. Okay, so somebody physically dies. They're on the operating table. They've had an accident. They've had cardiac arrest. Something's happened their brain and their heart stop functioning, their consciousness begins to separate from the body, and the consciousness feels a profound sense of wholeness, integrity, and safety. If the person had been blind all of their life, during the near-death experience, they can see what kind of clothes the medical personnel have on. If there were a lot of opioids in the bloodstream, the consciousness in the near-death experience was not affected by those drugs. If the body had been traumatized through burning, cutting, crushing, automobile accident, fire, whatever, the consciousness was not affected by what was happening to the physical body and, in fact, was maybe even a little confused why the medical, the emergency medical personnel seemed to be treating this as such an emergency when they felt completely fine. They were up above watching this event happening with a sense of peace, of safety, of integrity. There are even stories, validated stories, where somebody dies on an operating table and the, the dead person's consciousness is attracted up to room 523 in another part of the hospital and there's a comatose person in room 523 who has a problem that the doctors can't figure out. And the comatose person tells the dead person, hey, it's the pancreas. And the dead person has only a near-death experience, and he goes back into his body, he wakes up, and he says, wow, I had this remarkable experience. I'm no longer afraid of dying in the way I used to be. And by the way, the guy in room 523, it's the pancreas. <laughs> <laughs> 
and they go up there and do some other tests, and they, wow, it was the pancreas, right? Or somebody who dies in a room can see around the corner of the outside of the hospital something that's going on in a room around the corner, and they come back and report something, and their body had never left this particular room. So interesting stuff. It's kind of implying that consciousness is a little bit more maybe plastic and flexible and non-localized than we might happen to think it is. So here's a near-death experience. Person dies. Consciousness hangs out around the body for a short period of time. And then it is attracted toward a really attractive light. Sometimes there is a tunnel, sometimes not. Sometimes there are guides of dearly departed loved ones, sometimes not. The, the consciousness comes up to the light and for reasons which we can call karma, realizes that this is not time to fully merge into the light, comes back into the body, the body becomes conscious, the person wakes up and says, I've had this remarkable experience, my whole relationship with death has changed, I'm not afraid of death, and you don't need to be either. The near-death experience. So that's, from all of my reading, that's a fairly typical reporting of what it is that happens. Okay, I'd like to make just one point about that, though, and that is that, going back to that Robert Bly pronouncing New Age, New Age to rhyme with sewage, there is this New Age thing, death is completely safe. There's nothing to worry about. And yes, death is completely safe to that consciousness that was not identified with the body and the personality. There is nothing more dangerous to your body than death, <laughs> okay? <laughs> so that the kind of assume that death is safe at that level is way overly simplistic. I, is that, that's kind of clear there. Now somebody actually dies. First part of the situation is the same. The consciousness leaves the body. It's hovering around the body. 20, 30 minutes, who knows how long, and is then attracted toward the light. And now, instead of it being a near-death experience, because it's a full-blown death experience, the consciousness merges into that light. Now, even the people who had the near-death experience describe the light as the most beautiful thing they have ever experienced. The reason for that, of course, the obvious answer is that that light is our true nature. That story I told before about feeling so at home when I met Maharaji, this is even more being at home. It's Maharaji is me. It's that I realize in this moment that I am the light. So the first thing that happens, one of the first things that happens when you die is that you become enlightened. So during this workshop, we've talked a lot about working with the difficult. We haven't talked that much about, a little bit, but we haven't talked that much about this other healing path of being able to bear love and light. The Tibetans say the light we experience is as bright as a thousand suns. That is a very bright light. It could be experienced as love or as spaciousness. We're going to do some meditations later today of going into non-dual spaciousness. And it's a very pleasurable experience. But almost always we pull out of that because it generates fear of death. It reveals fear of death. One of the things we can practice in our lives is bearing light, 
love, spaciousness, profound peace, whatever facet of that sense of beingness that we're talking about here. So the person has died, they die into the light, and they have this remarkable advantage that they don't have a body and a personality to lug around anymore. The body is gone. They're in the light. Can they rest in the light? Can they stay there? To the extent they can stay there, they're done. But to the extent that that person who has just physically died is still identified with hopes, fears, and desires, then that which they're still holding on to is going to eject them from just resting in the light. Just as right now, we are that light. It's just as bright right now as in the after-death state. Right now, enlightenment. But I'm sitting over here, you're sitting over there. Doesn't look all that bright in this room. The clouds have come out. <laughs> okay. So we get fixated at that level of consciousness. Okay, so somebody's died, they're in the light, the light's a little too bright, and the hopes, fears, desires, what they're still identified with is there. So let me give a couple of kind of instructive, metaphorical, humorous examples. In the first example, you have died, but there's still a part of you that feels a little incomplete. You haven't felt like you completely lived your life. You've just been in the light, but now you're beginning to identify with, I'm, I'm not this complete being. Trotting right in front of you in this after-death state is the projection of your need. So here is your, here is your soulmate, the person that is perfect for you intellectually, spiritually, sexually, emotionally, financially, any way you think you could need something that you didn't get. There it is. So there's not some soulmate trotting through there, but it's, it's the projection of your desire system. Do you realize that this is just your mind, this is just a projected need, and you can let it go, just like we can let it go right now? Or do you buy into this? Because it's not just an attractive person, it's the perfect one for you. And you go trotting over to this person and say, I'm kind of busy dying now, but when I'm done with this, I'd really like to get together with you. Could I get your phone number? So maybe that's kind of silly. But every time you see a man walking down the sidewalk and he almost breaks his neck looking at an attractive woman walking the other direction, that's going to make it a little bit harder for him to die consciously. Or a woman looking at a man. We don't have to be too sexist here, but... Example number two, you've died. You don't have a body. But one of the things that you're still holding on to is fear for your body. That's one of the things that we most closely identify with. You don't have a body. You're in the after-death state. And right behind you, you hear the loudest, angriest, most ferocious-sounding dog who wants to bite your head off. Now, there's no dog there, but there's your fear for your body. Do you unconsciously recoil from that fear or do you realize it's just your mind and you let it come and you let it go? To the extent you just let it go, you just saved 
three lifetimes of psychotherapy, right? <laughs> it's, it's done. To the extent you say, oh my God, unconsciously, that creates more karma that has to be worked through sooner or later. The first person that I ever really, quote, worked with, unquote, uh, there was a young man named Chris who was in his late 20s. He had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He had been living in Toronto. He moved to Santa Cruz for reasons which he never really knew. He started coming to a meditation group that Stephen and I led on Tuesday nights. And as he got sicker and was approaching death, this group of people in the meditation group became the, the genesis of the hospice of Santa Cruz. But Chris, one of his main issues was that he was feeling sexually frustrated. He was getting very weak. He was in his late 20s. He was a guy. I don't know if he'd ever been sexual before he got sick. But at the very least, for some extended period of time, he hadn't been a sexual being. And that really bothered him. He would talk about that. So I happened to have the shift of being with him during the night before he died in the morning, the 12 to 6 o'clock shift. He had been in a light comatose state for over a day. He was lying in bed, unmoving, and I'm sitting there kind of meditating. All of a sudden, I heard some movement, and I looked, and his eyes were wide open. He was looking at the ceiling with a look of intense rapture. Thought that possibly he was dying and that the heavenly host had come to greet him. And I said, Chris, Chris, what do you see? He said, beautiful women wherever I look. And those were the last words that man ever spoke. So about six hours later, when he was actually actively dying, Stephen and the rest of our meditation group were gathered around the bedside. And Stephen said to Chris, Chris, if you see beautiful women as you're dying, realize it's only a projection of your mind. Trust the wisdom and the compassion that you have cultivated during this life. Don't follow those desires. Trust, trust the love, trust the wisdom. And it felt like those words really penetrated deeply into Chris's being. So if you know somebody who's dying, and you know the way that they would most typically get caught, you might, if you feel inward permission to give them some advice. When my Aunt Hannah died, I said, Hannah, if you happen to see a pile of dust in some corner of the tunnel of light, you don't have to stop and clean it up. <laughs> you just keep on going, right? You could, eat, you could eat lunch off of her kitchen floor, right? The Tibetans say that this first opportunity of realizing your true nature when you're resting in the light is the easiest time in an extended lifetime. This part of the life, right after you've died, what comes next, that's the easiest time to really get, to grok, to fully get who you are. The next easiest time is this second period where You've been in the light, so that's a big advantage. You've just been enlightened. The stuff, though, that pulls you out of that enlightenment is appearing to you. Can you see it for what it is? And just let it go. And they say that even, there's even a third possibility when you've not taken full advantage of the first two. You're so frustrated, and you see your true nature through your relationship with the frustration. But that's by far the more difficult of the three.
That's some oversimplification of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, even combined with some early Christian Ars Morendi guide, guides to dying before the Roman Church got to a hold of all that stuff. Some shamans say pretty much the same kinds of things. And what I find is really wonderful and provocative about that story is that we don't need special tricks or talents to die well. That exactly the qualities that will help us be alive right now as fully as possible are the qualities that will help you and I go through the dying process. So this moment and this moment is your and my preparation for dying. And when somebody cuts you off in traffic, that's your preparation for dying. And when, you, and when you wake up in the middle of the night, that's your preparation for dying. Not in any morbid kind of way. It's how alive can we be? How awake can we be? If we can be awake now, it'll be easier to be awake during that process. How we live affects how we die. How we die affects what happens next. Ramdas, somebody asked him about this, and he said, because in certain schools of Buddhism, they put an awful lot of emphasis on the moment of death itself and the fact the last few mind moments. And in fact, that there are something like some million mind moments each second. And the last 13 mind moments determines your next incarnation, if you believe in reincarnation. You might notice that in my story, I didn't talk about heaven and hell or reincarnation or Shirley MacLaine. We stopped at a certain point because everybody has different opinions about what happens next. And we're stopping at the point that this is the useful part. This is what we need to know to inform how we're going to live. And you might have your beliefs about what happens after that. I really don't even particularly care about that. I don't know if reincarnation exists. The Buddha said there are four things that can unhinge the mind. One is trying to understand reincarnation. A second is trying to understand karma. A third is how it all began, and the last is how it will all end. So the mind likes to play with these things as a way of distracting itself from life itself. There are books about these things. I'm not too interested. The other thing is that very often when somebody is dying or has died, we're completely preoccupied with helping them, doing the right thing, instead of being open to receive the blessing that they are more able to give them than probably any other time in their lives. After somebody you love dies, they are probably up in heaven or in the rainbow body or whatever, wherever they are, just showering blessings on you but you're so busy worrying about them and what's going to happen next that one doesn't take the time to open and receive the blessing. And I think, I think that's really important. The, the only reason I'm bringing up the near-death experience is because I feel that it's a very clear representation of the first part of the dying process. How safe it is to consciousness, how there is a universal attraction to the most beautiful light, this sense of going home to our, our true self. And yesterday we did a dyad where there was a repeating question, what blocks your compassion? 
And I have been involved in that dyad so many times because I almost always do it at a workshop. And half the time, there's an odd number of people. So I end up as one of the dyads. And I always get to the same answer, that what blocks my compassion is lack of faith. That if I really have faith, there's going to be compassion. Faith in God, faith in me, faith in true nature, whatever it might be. The very first part of our practice is invoke that which you trust. I've often said, everybody trusts something. And I've had a couple of people in my group say, I don't trust anything. Or one woman said, the only thing I trust is the law of gravity. And she was uh, somebody who practiced Buddhism for 30 years. Been to India, lived with Sai Baba, good buddies with the Dalai Lama. She trusted the law of gravity. In answer to somebody's agnosticism or what kind of belief they bring, belief is in the mind, faith is in the gut. Okay, let's use the words in, in that sense right now. Faith and lack of faith can also be experienced somatically. I was, I was talking during the break and likened myself to a sandwich. And there's three levels to the sandwich. The bottom level, there's complete, unshakable faith. I have faith in Maharaji. I have faith in God. I know that as much as I know there's, my foot is on the ground. And at the top level, I can talk a good talk. I can talk about faith. I can talk about God. I can be articulate. I can have a room full of people come and have me talk about this stuff. But there's this middle layer of neurosis where I get scared, I get neurotic, I get angry, I get lost in emotion. So my work is, can I keep trusting that lower level? Can I keep, when I'm lost in the meat, when I'm lost in who's got the meats, you know, when I get lost in that place where I don't have faith, can I remember? And there's this wonderful teacher, Gurdjieff, that some of you have heard of, who, in his language, being awake, as he called it, self-remembering. And he had all these wonderful teachers. He was kind of a Sufi in the, the Caucasus Mountains. He, he studied with somebody who was a perfumer and a goldsmith and a rug maker. And, but they were Sufis who were teaching him God in the context of making rugs and making perfume and, and, and gold objects. And he said, in spite of all these teachers, he had, he had all these powers that if all he had to do was think about money in a certain way and it would show up in his life. He said he could even kill an, an animal just using his mind. I don't know why he'd want to do that, but he said he could do that. But he said that in spite of having those powers, he couldn't remember himself. He couldn't self-remember. And he tried everything. He got a mala, he, he said mantras, he tied a string around his finger, he tried meditating, and he said, I tried all these things and nothing worked. He said, but then I had the idea, what if I gave up my powers and I had to suffer to get money and to be comfortable in life just like everybody else? Maybe the suffering itself would remind me. He said, and it worked. We all have imperfect faith. And yet we have all, in moments, had perfect faith. We've all have been touched, have touched that place. Is it possible that the suffering itself, the ways that we get lost, 
that that reminds us that there is another way to be. And it's practice, whether we're talking about dying or whether we're talking about any other neurotic structure that might happen to be in us. It's the same process of what do we trust? I mean, in, in Buddhism, before one begins to do any big, bigger chunk of practice, one takes refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And the Buddha is not the guy. The Buddha is the fact that freedom does exist. The Buddha was the representation of a state of being that is available to all of us and, in fact, is the true nature of all of us already. And the Dharma is that there is a way to that. There is a way of practice that will bring us there. And the Sangha is the group of people who are doing this, not just those of us in this room now, but all the people who are practicing in the world. And all the people who have died who have been the teachers of the teachers of the teachers' teachers that have brought wisdom into this room and all those other rooms, that all through history there is this movement of this wisdom and compassion that comes down from one generation to the next. We are being supported by all of that. It's kind of hard to remember in the middle of walking down Valencia Avenue or 18th Street, but what else is there really?